Welcome to Be Brave at Work, a podcast devoted to helping you take the next step in your workplace. Each week, we'll be talking with real people with real stories about things they have not said or done or have said or done in their workplace that required bravery. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. This is Ed Everts, and I'm the founder and president of Excellius Leadership Development. Welcome to Be Brave at Work, a podcast devoted to helping you take the next step in your workplace. I hope you'll listen to our past podcast conversations, and if you'd like to hear past episodes, go to BeBraveAtWork.com, subscribe to our podcasts, and learn some valuable lessons about bravery at work. My new book, Drive Your Career, Nine High-Impact Ways to Take Responsibility for Your Success, is now available in paperback, on Kindle, and in audio at Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, and any online book retailer you prefer. Check out Drive Your Career today. Our podcast today is sponsored by Cabot Risk Strategies. Based in Woburn, Massachusetts, Cabot Risk Strategies has created innovative and customized insurance strategies for individuals and families, businesses, nonprofits, commercial real estate, and public entities. Cabot's client base continues to expand both within the region and within the markets they serve. And if you are looking for customized insurance services and solutions, contact Cabot at 800-222-5963 or visit them for more information at cabotrisk.com. From his strong roots at Fortune 500 companies and on Wall Street to developing smaller but powerful brands, Lucas Root has built a strong track record of successes that also includes many speaking engagements, podcasts, publications, and his best-selling work-from-home course. Whether leading business and projects for his clients or mentoring his clients to become empowering leaders themselves, Lucas is a heart-centered expert in business. Additionally, his passion to serve and support female leaders in startups and entrepreneurship is at the forefront of the next wave of success and change in the world. We're really thrilled to have Lucas with us today on Be Brave at Work. Welcome, Lucas. Thank you so much for having me, Ed. I'm excited about chatting. (laughs) Well, I am excited as well, and I think our listeners would love to know a little bit more about your background and how you are currently interacting in the marketplace. Cool. Um, So I spent 17 years on Wall Street doing mergers and acquisitions. Um, I was the guy in the back end after a merger had been decided, the two companies were decided and, you know, more or less the budget was figured out. I was the guy who figured out how to stitch together the two companies, which is very cool work. It's also um, in its own way, backbreaking. I'm, you know, I wasn't, actually lifting boulders, but there's a lot of heavy lifting going on. Um, Loved it. Had a great time. Uh, It it kept me captivated for 17 years. After a while, I started to realize, and this is kind of a cool realization that I've, I've been talking about recently, that when you're paid a salary, let's say you make 100,000 a year as, as your salary, but you're worth something more than that. And you're not really sure how much you're worth, right? When you're paid a salary, the difference between what you're getting paid and what you think you're worth usually is um, a combination of things that your employer is providing to you as a, a relatively unseen service. And it's not just health insurance. They cover um, pipeline management, right? So they're responsible for bringing work to you to make sure that your day is full, pipeline management. Now, as a business owner now, having left Wall Street, I have come to recognize that pipeline management is incredibly valuable. I pay a lot of money to my pipeline managers in my businesses. Um, Your employer pays for 
what I like to call bench risk. If there isn't actually enough work for you to get done, you don't get laid off for the day. If you're salaried, you get paid anyway and you just, you know, leave at noon instead. That's called bench risk. Um, and your employer pays for um, the workflow cycle management, right? So there's work that has to be done before you receive your work. And then there's work that has to be done after you're finished with your work. And your employer pays for making sure that there are people in front of you and behind you to ensure that all of the work that the customer is expecting, all of it, gets done and delivered as a completed package. Really powerful stuff. Um, when I was a salaried employee, I didn't really get that. It wasn't forefront in my mind. So I, you know, I'm sitting there thinking, hey, I'm worth 200 and I'm only getting paid 100. Screw you all. I'm going to leave and go make my 200. And I did. And um, in the process, I started to realize that, yes, I could bill at 200, but I didn't get to keep it all because <laughs> I still had to pay for all those things. Pipeline management, workflow management, the stuff before my my brilliance, my genius, the stuff after my brilliance and genius, right? I still had to pay for all that stuff, bench risk. Um, and that came out of that, you know, the 200 that I was billing. I'm like, damn it. I thought I was... I thought I was worth this 200. <laughs> it has been an amazing ride. Um, accepting that, that shift from, you know, I showed up, where's, where's mine. And, and I was, I, I was on wall street for 17 years. I mean, they wash people out. Um, they could have washed me out. So I was absolutely worth what I was getting paid, but moving from, I showed up, where's mine. I did my work. Where's mine to, wow, there's so much more involved in delivering to my desk the things that I want to be great at. Yeah, well, there are things called overhead and taxes and other hidden expenses that uh, make it stay. So you left Wall Street, and what are you doing today? I'm a business strategy consultant. I, I work with brands who don't execute. Um, my favorite example of that is the Pokemon company. I've been with them for six and a half years. We have an amazing relationship. Um, kind of like how I used to be in Wall Street, the Pokemon company has a very narrow view of what they want to be good at. Kind of like the way I live in the world today, they understand that the rest of the stuff has to get done. So they want to stay really focused and they bring me in to help make sure that all the rest of the stuff actually gets done. So that might look like um, they come up with an idea, a, a new way to approach the market, a new product they want to launch, a, you know, a, a new character they want to bring out. Um, and they'll call me up and they'll say, all right, we have this great new idea. We love it. We're ready to fund it. Um, come figure out how to get it into the market. You, you do the rest. Um, let's say it's a plush. What that means is <clears throat> I'll have to engage with their existing manufacturers and figure out whether or not there's capacity to put out a new toy. Um, I'll have to engage with the existing supply chain service vendors to understand how to make sure that that toy gets to the different market segments that are relevant for that toy and doesn't go, so at least not in too much depth, to the market segments that it's not relevant to. Um, I'll have to engage with their e-com team to make sure that e-com is ready to start getting sales. I'll have to engage with their uh, distribution team to make sure that, you know, the stores target Walmart is ready to start putting that on the shelf. And um, all of that stuff is stuff that has to be done and stuff the Pokemon company just doesn't want to be great at. 
I love that. I love it because it pays me well. I also love it because it's such an amazing example of how even mature, really valuable brands can can and do stay really super focused. Well, uh, you know, all companies have services that they don't themselves like to do. So they find others to come in and do it. And I'm curious, Lucas, in your uh, biography that I read earlier, you describe yourself as a heart centered expert in business. And I'm curious what that means. Yeah. Well, um, in the Pokemon example, I, I one of the things that I love working about with them is that, you know, their mission in the world is to make kids smile. And I get to play in that in that sandbox. Um, and it's fantastic. Um, it's a profitable relationship. They, they love working with me. I love working with them. But also, I love helping them succeed because I love what they're doing. Um, but it's not just that. Once I left Wall Street, um, you know, you, you, you spend a certain amount of your life doing billable things and a certain amount of your life doing things that are not necessarily billable. When you're a salaried employee, you don't spend so much mind space thinking about the difference between those things. Now, it's, it's still valuable, even if it's not billable. Example, you go out to coffee with a coworker who is not on one of your projects right now. It's fun for you. So you don't think about it as non-billable pipeline management or non-billable workflow management. But then a year later, you've been going out to the coffee with them for a year. A year later, something comes down the pipeline. You have to deal with it. You know exactly who to call because you've been going to coffee with them. And it goes by really quickly. It's super easy. It's smooth. It, you know, the, the wheels are greased. That's a perfect example from an employee's perspective of how um, making sure that you focus on non-billable stuff some of the time is really valuable. Now me, now that I'm not an employee anymore, I'm an entrepreneur, I focus my non-billable time still like that but I started to focus it on spreading the word, so to speak, hopping on podcasts with you or, um, I, you know, I, one of my LinkedIn outreach right now, and it's, it's a whole campaign and it's not designed to bring me business at all. Now, I, I fully expect it will, but that's not the point is I'm reaching out to female founders of startups and I'm building relationships with them. And in some cases, I'm helping them find other people with whom I've built a relationship to help, you know, with some specific niche need that they have. Um, I, I set up a coffee date last week that I was not in, in, involved in between two different um, technology entrepreneurs. One is um, in between startups and one of them is deep in the thick of startups and their technology you know, the one's need matches the one's expertise. And I was like, you two need to meet. Um, and it's, I, I was able to do that the same way as that employee who takes their colleague out to coffee. I was able to do that just because I'm spending my non-billable time building some relationships so that I can make those introductions. Well, entrepreneurialism is a topic we cover <clears throat> often on Be Brave at Work. And a lot of our guests have described entrepreneurs as people who like risk and people who want to be different. And of course, bravery at work requires uh, is required really in an entrepreneurial world. You know, a lot of people think entrepreneurs are brave because of what they do and how they do it, not knowing if what they're going to do is going to work. 
I'm wondering what some of your thoughts or observations might be as it pertains to entrepreneurialism and bravery. Is it something that requires bravery in order to step out and do what it is you want to do? Does it not? You know, I'd be curious what some of your thoughts might be. Mm, fun question. Yes, um, it absolutely requires bravery. Um, and, and let me go down that bucket. But first, um, let's agree on the definition of bravery. <laughs> sure. Um, here's what I think of bravery. And this is your podcast, so you may think very differently than me. <laughs> There's many definitions. Yeah. Um, I think bravery is somebody who recognizes risk um, and works through their response to that recognized risk and finds a way to move forward um, that has a chance to accomplish their goal. Accepted. Sounds good. Cool. Awesome. I love it. So um, to be a successful entrepreneur, you can't be blind to risk because if you're blind to risk, I don't I would argue that's not actually bravery. Um, there are lots of words that that could be described as, but but I don't I don't think bravery is one of them. Probably not favorable if you're uh, <laughs> blind to risk as an entrepreneur. Right. And certainly in, in the long run, probably not favorable to your wallet. That's right. <laughs> to be a to be a successful entrepreneur, you have to recognize risks. You have to be good at, at recognizing them, building a plan to manage those risks somehow, and then actually executing that plan. The first two, I think a lot of people spend a lot of time on recognizing risks and planning to manage them. It's the third one that really starts to become fun that really starts to become profitable is is actually executing that plan and and doing it well um and that's where entrepreneurship starts to become more than just a title um it it becomes a lifestyle it becomes um a way you think about the world it's kind of like a diet in and what way well um i find that people have diets or they diet um, the people who have diets change the way they think about the world in accordance to the way they want to eat. The people who do diets uh, don't change the way they think about the world. Um, and I think I think that's a good metaphor for entrepreneurship. Um, you you have you have a risk diet, and if you're willing to change the way you think about the world in order to manage the risks, um, and and it's it's cool to talk about it this way because pe- a lot of people talk about risk appetite. Um, but I, let's reframe. I, I think the reframe of risk diet might be a better way to do it. Change the way that you think about the world so that you can manage those risks. I like it. I had a guest on the podcast last week who talked about something called emotional labor. And emotional labor is about the investment you need to make in navigating a transition, not different than the diet, right? Somebody who is uh, invested in changing the world is a little bit different than someone who's looking for something else to change the world that they use, right? So a diet might be somebody who is changing how they eat systemically versus someone who's purchasing for $4.99 a month a diet, praying to God that they're going to lose 20 pounds and then they're done and they move on, which of course, the next thing you know, they're putting the weight back on. So, uh, you know, I'm curious, Lucas, it's, this sounds like something that's very near and dear to your heart. You know, how would you define entrepreneurialism? I mean, at the very general term and kind of a big question, right? We could probably talk about that for hours. But, you know, when you think about an entrepreneur, uh, and of course, I'm very interested in entrepreneurialism as it relates to bravery. But regardless of that, you know, how do you think about, you know, what is an entrepreneur? Mm -hmm. I think we're all capable of being entrepreneurs. 
Um, an entrepreneur is somebody who recognizes a problem, sees a problem, recognizes it, sees that there's a solution, um, believes that there is that they are capable of providing that solution to that problem um, and is willing to actually go and execute. Right. And I, I think a lot of entrepreneurs either uh, that don't work out well, uh, either didn't solve a problem that needed to be solved or no one else agreed it was a problem that needed to be solved. Uh, but those entrepreneurs who can legitimately find a problem that needs legitimate solving and can get the bandwidth and recognition and all of the assets and overhead you talked about earlier needed in order to bring it to life, their likelihood for success long term, I think, is greater. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, the uh, the Segway company is one of my favorite to talk about. Um, and and particularly because of how that particular story ends. Um, the Segway company managed to raise, I think it was $2 billion, like an, an, a, such a monstrously huge amount of money. It's, it's, it should be laughable to, to build a product that exactly as you said, nobody agreed was a solution to a problem that needed to be solved. Um, it found itself a very niche market that wasn't profitable by any stretch in, um, you know, tourists in, in downtown DC who didn't want to do 25,000 steps a day, but still wanted to see all the sites <laughs> and, yeah. and Paul Blart mall cop, right? The right, right. Two very niche markets. So, um, but it's a really cool product. Now what the Segway company actually ended up solving, um, and this is the update to that story. Cause you go back five years, that's the story. And you're like, all right, they're going to fail. Um, the fact that they raised $2 billion just means they haven't gotten to the end of their cash yet, but it's going to happen. Um, fast forward to today and you look at them and you say, holy crap, like these guys are the largest manufacturers of, um, of electric powered, uh, single use vehicles. So electric bikes, um, electric scooters, what they ended up doing completely by accident is solving a different problem that they didn't think that they were solving. How to manufacture this tool that they thought itself was going to be for sale. And now somebody else takes a different idea that's parallel and says, I, I think this will work. And the market says, yeah, yeah, I agree. Let's do this. Now, I mean, th the Segway is a two-wheeled thing that moves you from point A to point B. And an electric scooter is a two-wheeled thing that moves you to, from point A to point B. And an electric bicycle is a two-wheeled thing that moves you from point A to point B. Um, if you zoom out far enough, they all are exactly the same. But one of those three didn't have a market and the other two did. And Segway is perfectly aligned to be the manufacturer of choice for all three of those. And they are. Now they're profitable. <laughs> I would hope so. After all this uh, time, I fell off a Segway once, but that's a whole nother story. Lucas, thank you so much for being on our podcast today. If folks wanted to reach out to you and talk more about entrepreneurialism or the work you're currently doing, how can they get in contact with you? Mm. Uh, best place to find me is on my website. I, I often have free things that you can go download or free events that I'm putting on that you can jump in and, and uh, hang out. So go to my website, get on my mailing list and I'll keep you up to date. Um, you can also find me if you like social on LinkedIn or Instagram, LinkedIn, I'm just linkedin.com forward slash IN forward slash Luke Root, L-U-C-R-O-O-T, because um, Lucas Root was taken. <laughs> um, 
And same thing with Instagram. I'm just Instagram.com forward slash Luke Root. Great. And your website is? LucasRoot.com. Fantastic. Well, Lucas, thank you so much again for joining us. Ed, my pleasure. This was fun. And to our listeners, thank you for joining us today. And we hope you join us on our next podcast conversation as we further explore being brave at work. We also remind you to subscribe to our podcast at BeBraveAtWork.com and or download and listen to our podcast on multiple online platforms. We are everywhere. Our podcast today was sponsored by Cabot Risk Strategies, whom you can reach at 800-222-5963 or visit them for more information at CabotRisk.com. And a reminder to check out my new book, Drive Your Career, Nine High-Impact Ways to Take Responsibility for Your Own Success, which is available in paperback, on Kindle, and in audio everywhere online. Do you have something to say, yet are not saying it? Do you have something to do, yet are not doing it? Now is the time to be brave at work. Have a great week.